Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Sue Barry on Coming to Our Senses. First, I wanted to remind you to check out booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the psychology or science and medicine category for episode number 100 with Lisa Feldman Barrett on seven and a half lessons about the brain. This is Lisa Feldman Barrett, author of seven and a half lessons about the brain. And you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Susan R. Berry is Professor Emeritus of Biology and Neuroscience at Mount Holyoke College, where she has researched stereovision, neuroplasticity, and hand-eye coordination. She's also the author of Fixing My Gaze, A Scientist's Journey into Seeing in Three Dimensions, and her newest book, titled Coming to Our Senses, A Boy Who Learned to See, A Girl Who Learned to Hear, and How We All Discover the World. Sue, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm you. I'm doing great, thank you. This was a beautiful book, and it tells the inspiring stories of a young man who learned to see and a young woman who learned to hear, as the subtitle suggests. Uh, Just how long have you been working on this project before it's publishing? I worked on it for 10 years, and that is I met Liam, the young man who learned to see, and Zora, the young woman who learned to hear, in 2010 and basically wrote the book in 2020. And I spent those 10 years really getting to know them and their families. So how did you initially connect with Liam and who was he when you first met? I first connected with Liam through his surgeon, the one who um, operated on his eyes that provided him with, that took him from being practically blind with acuity of about 22,000 to um, almost near normal visual acuity uh, by inserting intraocular lenses into Liam's two eyes. And his surgeon's name is Dr. Lawrence Tyson. And Dr. Tyson had actually invited me to come to St. Louis to Washington University to give a talk on my own vision story, gaining stereo vision as an adult after being cross-eyed all my life. And as I'm telling him my story, He said to me, you must meet one of my patients. You must meet Liam. He has a vision rehabilitation story to tell. And so that after that, I got in touch with Liam first by phone, then by email, then through visits, many, many more emails. And over the 10 years, I got to know him and his family well enough, I felt to write the book. For a little bit of background on this sense, how long does it typically take our eyes to form into what we become accustomed to seeing the world through throughout our lives? An infant, a newborn infant, um, has eyes that are not fully developed. So um, in the back of the eye is the retina, where the light sensing cells are found. And um, the center of the retina is called the fovea. And that's where our highest acuity vision is. And the fovea is not fully developed at birth. There's a a great deal of development that occurs during those first months of life. But even after the eyes have basically developed, vision itself, the ability to take in the information from light out there and make sense of it, that 
visual development occurs throughout childhood, at least for the first 10 years. Hmm. It's commonly thought that right eye dominant people use the left side of their brain more and vice versa. I myself am left eye dominant. Is that true? And if so, how does it work? I don't know if that's true. I don't um, know if right eye dominant people are more left brain dominant and left eye dominant people are more right eye dominant. It is, uh, and in fact, it's not the case that all the information from the right eye goes to the left brain and vice versa. It is the case, for example, that if I were to move my right hand, it's my left brain that is commanding my hand to move. Hmm. And if my right hand then touches something, that information is picked up by my left brain and vice versa. But it's not true with the eyes. The way it works with the eyes is that the right visual field, which is seen by both eyes, is um, processed. That information is processed by the left brain. And the left visual field, what you see to your left, which is seen by both eyes, is processed by the right brain. So um, there's, as a result of that, I think it unlikely that we can just sort of automatically state a right eye dominant person is left brain dominant and vice versa. Hmm. So as far as Liam is concerned, you mentioned that he received a surgery involving replacing his intraocular lenses. Just how did this technology come to be? So they didn't replace his lenses. What Dr. Tyson did was add a second lens to each of his eyes, keeping his natural lens. And the story of these intraocular lenses is actually quite quite interesting. And it's one of those stories where it takes a, um, a smart investigator to make an observation that can then be life-changing. And this was done by a man named Howard, Howard, Harold Ridley, who was an ophthalmologist in Britain. And what he noticed was that after the Second World War, he had patients in particular, one man in particular, but he also noted this with other patients as well, that had been pilots and had been fighting, let's say, in the Battle of Britain and so on. And in the course of those combat missions, their airplane canopy had exploded and the plastic from the airplane canopies had lodged in their eyes. And what he noticed in doing then surgeries on one pilot in particular was that the eyes didn't react, the body didn't react to the plastic. It didn't mount a big response to it, that those plastic fragments remained in the eyes, but the body didn't react to them. And that got him thinking, well, maybe we could make a lens out of that plastic that we could then insert into people's eyes. The eye would not react to the plastic. And now that lens could be used to help focus. And that's exactly what happened. So just Uh, go ahead. It took a long time for the ophthalmological community to accept this idea, but when they did, then um, these intraocular lenses became pretty much the default way of dealing with cataracts, 
where a lens is removed and then the intraocular lens is put in. And then later on, dealing with severe uh, acuity problems like Liam had, in which the natural lens is kept in the eye and the intraocular lens is added. How much has the technology evolved since it first became acceptable in the mainstream? I want to say it was around the 1970s that uh, this technology started to become more widely accepted. Has the, I guess, the ability to implement this procedure, to perform the surgery required for this procedure, has that improved greatly over the last 40 to 50 years? I can't really answer that, but I can say that the, the plastic the, the construction of the lens itself, the actual materials has changed and evolved oh. over time. And, so, the, and, and the optics have become better. So how much did this surgery help Liam with his sight? It helped him much more than Dr. Tyson, his ophthalmologist, or Liam or his mother could imagine. So his acuity was 22,000 without glasses before the operations, about 20 to 50 with glasses. After the operations, without glasses at all, his acuity was almost normal. It was about 2040 or 2050. Wow. And so he underwent a radical change in the way the world appeared to him. Inevitably, this radical change is going to lead to some difficulties as well. What is museum fatigue, and how does it help explain some of Liam's new vision difficulties? Okay, so museum fatigue. I don't know if, if everyone experiences this, but I think it's pretty common, so common that it actually has a name, museum fatigue. <laughs> and that is when you go to a museum and you start, let's say, looking at the paintings, let's say it's an art museum, and you're looking at the paintings and the sculpture and so on. And after maybe an hour, you get really tired. And you know that there's like rooms and rooms and rooms left to see. And you might've gone there with all sorts of enthusiasm, but you get worn out. And it's probably because you're spending so much time analyzing you know, you look at a given painting and you're trying to understand it and maybe you're reading the description of it and then looking back at the painting. It's um, cognitively, you're doing a lot of heavy lifting and it's exhausting. And I use that idea of museum fatigue to try to explain what it was like for Liam to look out upon the world. Because to him, the entire world would be like the museum. He, when he began to see with his intraocular lenses, what he saw were patches of color and lines everywhere. And these didn't inflate into space. Instead, it seemed like all of this information, these lines and patches of colors were on one flat plane. So what I mean by a line is anytime there's a change in contrast, like between light and dark, or between one texture and another texture, or between one color and another color. So for example, let's say he was walking down the sidewalk and he sees a line on the sidewalk. Was it a crack in the cement? Was it the division between two sidewalk blocks? Was the line due to a shadow from a pole? Was the line um, a step? A step going up due to a step going up or a step going down or a curb? Should he walk over it? 
Should he ignore it? Should he step up? Should he step down? And so he was constantly analyzing what his eyes were showing him and then trying to figure out how to move. And for most of us, in fact, I went out and tried to imagine what this was like with shadows. And I would try to photograph a shadow and then look at it. And I automatically knew it was a shadow. I never had any doubt. And so of course, if I'm walking down the street and there's shadows on the sidewalk, I can ignore them without really much conscious thought at all. But for Liam, every walk down the street required an athletic level of focus to try to figure out what he was seeing. Is there a psychological explanation for why Liam and so many others who gain vision after not having it for so long see lines, edges, and contours instead of whole objects? Yeah, I think in Liam's case, and and probably in the case of other adults who have recovered sight, um, the visual areas in their brain are not well developed. So they are able to see the raw stimuli like different colors or, you know, the contrast between light and dark, which Liam saw as lines, for example. They're able to see all that, but without higher visual areas participating, they're not able to take that raw stimuli and immediately group the stimuli in such a way that you can say, oh, those particular lines make up a chair and those particular lines make up a tree branch or whatever. So all of that development of taking that raw stimuli and turning it into meaningful objects occurs in infancy and the early years of life, a period of time when we don't really remember what was going on. And so it seems to us that when we look upon the world, what we first see are not details. What we first see are the general gist of things. Mm. Let's say, look out my house and I see the houses across the street and I see trees and I see whatever. Um, I don't see individual lines that outline the trees and the houses and the individual details unless I turn my attention to them. What I get immediately is just the gist of the landscape. And that is due to all the visual development that occurred in my uh, young years. And that was something that Liam never had. And so for him, his eyes gave him all this raw stimuli, but it didn't make sense. You mentioned that he had trouble with shadows. How did he handle reflections? He doesn't like reflections. I can tell you that he finds mirrors and windows to be very um, difficult to make sense of. Um, and so um, his, his um, rule was this. Um, a window shows you things that are outside. A mirror shows you things that are inside because they're reflected inside. And that's, and, and he basically avoids looking at them if, if, uh, He doesn't need to. It was fascinating to learn that sports came naturally to Liam and many of those who are newly sighted. Why is this, Sue? Well, motion, the ability to see something in motion seems to be um, 
kind of innate. In other words, you don't need a lot of visual experience to see something in motion and even to gauge the direction of that motion. And so one of the first things that Liam can do after he gained his sight was play catch, believe it or not. And if you think about that, it does seem sort of surprising because imagine thinking of a ball sitting on a table and now think of the ball uh, coming toward you as if you were playing catch. It seems like, well, if that ball is still and you have all the time in the world to look at it, it would be easier to recognize it sitting still. But actually, if the ball is moving, first of all, the whole ball is moving of a piece that, you know, the whole ball is moving as a unit. And second of all, its movement distinguishes it from the rest of the background, which is static and not moving. And so moving objects are easier to identify because they move as a whole and because they're distinguished from the black background than an object that is just sitting still. And uh, sure enough, one of the first things that Liam could do uh, with his new site was play catch. Is this an extension of the motion parallax that you described? It's, um, a, that is a different um, effect of motion that can also be very useful to okay. Liam. So the way that works is if you uh, turn your head back and forth while fixing, fixating, looking at some object, then the objects in front of the thing you're looking at will appear to move in the opposite direction of your motion. So if you're, let's say, looking at something in the mid distance, objects in front of it, if your head turns to the right, will appear to move to the left and vice versa. Mm. While objects behind whatever you're fixating on will appear to move with your motion. If you're moving to the right, they appear to move to the right. You can try that by, you know, putting up your finger, looking at it, putting up another finger closer or further from that first finger. And, and you can see this relative motion. And that gives us a hint as to where things are located, how far away they're located from you in space, hmm. that, that motion parallax. Um, and so it was one way that Liam could begin to, to understand space, to begin to understand, is this object in front of this other object or behind it, and so on. Emotional expressions are fairly universal. So why did Liam struggle to assess facial expressions other than happy and sad? So, and this is a very common problem with people uh, with sight recovery is um, recognizing faces and recognizing facial expressions. And some of that has to do, I think, with the fact that Liam was not in the habit of looking at people's faces in the way that a normally sighted person does. A normally sighted person, you look at somebody's eyes and the eyes give you a lot of cues as to how, um, how that other person is feeling. And um, you, sure, you can use the mouth to see a smile and say, okay, the person seems happy or at least he's smiling. Um, but it's the eyes that really give you a great deal of information about how um, a person is feeling. And in fact, if you blank out the eyes, it's harder to, um, to, to diagnose, to notice fear in another person. Well, Liam, after a, a childhood of, of a face just being 
sort of uh, a blurry blob with dark parts in it for the eyes and dark parts, let's say, for the hair, was not in the habit of looking at people's eyes. And so to some extent, I think his problem with facial expressions is he just didn't have the habit of looking in the right place to understand um, what a person is thinking. A lot of people who either totally lack one sense or have a greatly diminished sense, and this is especially the case with eyesight, have an incredible awareness of their surroundings. Did gaining vision further enhance Liam's spatial understanding, a.k.a. his cognitive map? Actually, I think gaining vision initially confounded it, Hmm. made life a lot more difficult because he was receiving all this information, all this information about color and lines that made no sense. And now he had this um, uh, challenge of trying to get meaning out of all this information that um, didn't initially correlate with what his ears, let's say, were showing him or what is what he could smell and hear and so on. Um, Liam has a very good sense of direction. And I found this out because we would walk around the medical campus of Washington University and it had a ton of buildings that were interconnected with each other. And I, and I would say to him, he obviously knew where he was going. And then I would say to him things like, well, where is your apartment in general? What direction is it in? And he could point accurately to that. And I'd say, in which direction is north? And I had a compass with me. And uh, he would point in a certain direction. I'd check my compass. And sure enough, he <laughs> was pointing to the north. So he had developed a cognitive map, a map of where he was and where other things were in space, initially without vision. And um, now his challenge was to take the visual things he was seeing. And if he could determine that those particular landmarks, like, oh, that building is the library, you know, and now I can see it as a library as opposed to just a collection of um, colors and lines. And now his challenge was to take what he could see and sort of put that into a, a map he already had in his head. What impresses you most about Liam? His persistence, his, um, and, and, and this is true for both Liam and Zora. I never heard them once feel sorry for themselves. Hmm. I never heard them once say, you know, poor me. Why am I, you know, why don't I have normal sight? Why don't I have normal hearing? I never heard them once feel sorry for themselves. What I saw instead was some were two people who were very grateful for the um, operations that they had and were bound and determined and persistent um, at, at getting better and better at using their new sense. And I have to add that both of them were blessed with um, somebody who was incredibly supportive for them. For Liam, it was his mother, Cindy. And for Zora, it was her aunt, Nejma. And, and both of them also had strong extended families as well. But they had at least this one other person who was cheering them on, guiding them, um, giving them the sort of the strength and the discipline um, 
to uh, work through the, the new challenges they had. But overall, like I said, I never heard either one of them ever in any way whine or feel sorry for themselves. Let's go ahead and get into Zora's story now. How did you initially connect with her and what was she like when y'all first met? You know, I almost didn't meet Zora. It's one of those, you know, things in life that um, it's just sort of lucky that it happened. So Zora was a student in my one of my classes at Mount Holyoke College. And she sent me an email at the very beginning of the semester asking to join this class. It was a neurobiology class. And the class was already oversubscribed. I had too many students in it. And um, I was about to type to her an email saying, I'm sorry, but the class is, is over full. When who should appear at my office door but Sora? And I had never met her at, up to that point. And she said, you know, she really wanted to take my class. And she mentioned that she had a cochlear implant, that she was profoundly deaf, had been profoundly deaf from birth, and wore a cochlear implant in one ear. And, um, and could she please take my class? Well, it's very hard when you see a student one-on-one to say no. And so I thought, all right, one more student, okay. So I said, sure, Zora, you can join the class. <laughs> so she did. A few days later is the first class meeting. And, you know, I go and I, and I stand in front of the uh, classroom. And, you know, students are in various states of sort of relaxation, you know, slumped in their seats and such like that. And there's Zora in the front row looking intently at me. <laughs> and at first I didn't recognize her. You know, I just, oh, there's a student. What is she doing? She's looking so carefully at me as I am talking. I started looking down on my clothes to make sure that there wasn't anything amiss. <laughs> and then I remembered, oh, it's Sora. She's the student with the cochlear implant. She is following what I'm saying, both by reading my lips and listening to my voice. And that's why she is so intent as compared to like the other students. And so, yeah, um, a couple days later, Zora came into my office to turn in an assignment, just a class assignment. And I said to her, Zora, would you be willing to tell me your story? And she looked at me with a little smile and, and as if to say, yes, of course. And no one has ever asked. That's a shame. I, I remember reading that in the book. It's a shame that these questions aren't asked of folks who have to live a very different life as a result of uh, some sort of sensory impairment. That's right. And um, we just assume, for the most part, that most people see and hear the way we see and hear. I just talked to another woman who um, had some of the similar visual problems as Liam, though not as severe. And she said to me um, that no one has ever asked her, you know, other than maybe briefly, oh, can you see this? Can you see that? But there's a lot more division than just identifying something and saying, oh, yeah, I can see that lamp or whatever. And she says, no one, no one has ever really seemed that interested in what my visual world is like. Well, it's interesting, too, because I feel like the exception is usually children, because children, maybe it's because the prefrontal cortex isn't uh, fully developed yet. And they don't have these insecurities that they're dealing with with themselves that manifest themselves when they ask uncomfortable questions of others. That's right. And some of it was that. And when I asked Sora, would you be willing to tell me your story? 
I was feeling a little sheepish, you know, like maybe I'm probing too hard. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I'm asking something very personal. And um, so I think, yes, I think that is part of it. But I think also a lot of it is we just assume that the way we see is the way other people see. And since we don't have any, any other experience other than our own way of seeing and perceiving, it's um, it kind of sort of fits that we just assume everyone else sees in the same way. We can all talk about the same sort of things, you know, oh, look at that car over there. Yeah, I see that car too, you know. Um, so um, yeah, we just kind of assume that everyone kind of perceives in the same way. This gets into a much deeper conversation with regards to society's current ills and our inability to speak with those that we don't necessarily see eye to eye with. We're not going to end up too far off the beaten path, though, because I do (laughs) do want to talk a little bit more about Zora's story. Uh, Before we get into the details of how her life was impacted by the cochlear implant, I did want to ask a little bit of background info on the subject of hearing and then also cochlear implants, too. So, for for the I guess the bare bones version of this, what is sound, and how do we hear it? So sound waves are um, due to compression and rarefication of air. It's sort of like the um, air molecules coming together and stretching out, coming together and stretching out again, and that causes the um, eardrum to vibrate, and then uh, through a a very sophisticated and interesting mechanical process that eventually causes hair cells in your inner ear. They're called hair cells because they have these appendages that look like hairs um, to signal that um, there has been sound. And um, this all occurs in the inner ear in that spiral shaped organ called the cochlea. And what's interesting about the cochlea is that the hair cells for low frequencies, what we hear as low sounds, like bass singer, let's say, um, are um, occur on one uh, at the very tip of the, um, the cochlea. So, in other words, different frequencies of sound, which we hear as different pitches, highs to low, occur at different places along the cochlea. Um, and the hair cells along the cochlea, each of them responds to a range of a particular range of frequencies. And what happens in a lot of cases with people who are deaf is the hair cells die. And these hair cells communicate with uh, the auditory nerve, which then sends signals to the brain where that auditory information is processed. And the way a cochlear implant works is it actually um, skips over all that processing that occurs in the cochlea and stimulates the auditory nerve directly. And in that way, the person hears. So the auditory nerve is stimulated, that information heads to the brain and the person receives the sensation of hearing. So how much did Zora's cochlear implant help with her hearing? Well, she was profoundly deaf. So when she was born, all she could probably hear was if you had started up a gas lawnmower right in front of her, she might've heard a noise. I don't think she ever was able to hear 
um, any kind of speech other than a, a muffled sound, no distinct words or anything like that. When she received the cochlear implant, she was 12 years old. And now she could hear um, words. She could hear all sorts of sounds. But again, she um, couldn't derive meaning from them initially. Mm. All of the sounds that she heard just sort of jumbled all together into just a kind of cacophony. And Zora told me a fascinating story. When her cochlear implant was first turned on at the age of 12, Zora could read lips and she knew from the audiologist that she was supposed to hear a beep. And the implant was turned on and she felt something. It was like a feeling in her head. And it wasn't a good feeling. It was really an uncanny feeling, a kind of frightening feeling. And she looked over at her mother, or at her aunt Najma and the audiologist. And they got excited because she reacted. Hmm. And they started talking. And when their lips were moving, she got that same weird feeling again. And then the audiologist sent a second beep into her implant. And she realized that that feeling was hearing, that she was hearing things. That's how novel hearing was to her. Wow. And that same day when they went out into the streets, she could hear car motors, she could hear voices, she could hear the wind, she could hear birds, whatever the environmental sounds were, but she couldn't separate them into their sources. I mean, the fact that we can do that is kind of amazing. You know, right now I'm hearing your voice, I'm hearing my voice, I'm hearing the fan on my computer. There might be some outside sounds I'm hearing, but I have no trouble, even if all those sound waves come into my ears at the same time, separating them and knowing which is my voice, which is your voice, which is, you know, the, the, the sounds outside. She couldn't do that initially. So it was all just one big cacophony. And her first reaction was, take this thing off. Hmm. I don't want this cochlear implant. And, um, but she had a tremendous amount of, of family support. And after about two weeks of first wearing the implant, she began to start to appreciate the sounds and not want to just throw the whole thing away. And the difficulty you just described is auditory scene analysis. So it took about a yeah. couple of weeks for her to start to become comfortable with that. Is she fully mm -hmm. comfortable with that at this point in her life? Well, she loves her cochlear implant. So from that sense, yes, she's comfortable with hearing and hearing all these noises. But um, it doesn't mean that She's as adept with hearing as you or I. And one issue Zora has is she has a cochlear implant in only one ear. Hmm. And to localize sounds, you really need two ears to localize sounds well. And um, since she has an implant only in one ear, she told me that even the concept of a sound having a particular location is kind of absent for her. Um, so if she hears a sound and she can see what's making the sound, then yes, she knows where that sound is coming from. But if she can't see the source of that sound, she doesn't know where it's coming from. 
that's interesting. We think about 3D with vision, and obviously you're somebody who's made a name for yourself in talking about stereo vision, but that also exists with hearing too. You're right, right. And in fact, Arlene Romoff, who wrote two books about um, cochlear implants, um, her experience with cochlear implants, would talk about the fact that when she got a second cochlear implant and could now get a much better idea of where sounds were coming from, were they in front of her, to her right, to her left, and above, below, and so on, she realized that the sound itself made for its own soundscape, a whole landscape that you could now understand. And this is something that um, Zora does not have. I can remember one day walking with Zora and we walked by a high hedge and behind the hedge, somebody was trimming it. And so, you know, that hedge trimmer was making a tremendous amount of noise and Zora certainly could hear it. It was no, it didn't take any great, great hearing to be able to hear that noise, but she did not know where it was coming from. And in fact, she asked me, what is that? And, you know, I said, oh, I think it's a hedge trimmer. And it's right over there on the other side of that hedge. But even though she could hear it, it was blasting in our ears. She did not know where it was coming. I love that Zora already loved watching the rain prior to the implant. What did yeah. she love about the rain before the implant? And how did hearing affect her love for the rain? She loved watching the raindrops. She loved the feel of the rain. You know, think about it. Sometimes the whole air feels different when it's raining out. But then when she got her implant, she realized she could hear the rain. <laughs> and um, here's an example also where motion and activity help with you to begin to understand your senses. You can see the rain coming down and you can hear it. And yeah, it was one of those wonderful epiphanies that she had. Was there a big difference in terms of the emotional impact for Zora and Liam with their newly enhanced senses? There was. Um, and some of this may have to do with their particular personalities. I can't really say. But for Zora, sound was, had an enormous emotional impact. While for Liam, when he was looking at things, Sights didn't, he, it, in fact, he was kind of confused why some people felt certain things were beautiful and other things were not. Hmm. But for Liam, I mean, for Zora, um, sounds that we all appreciate, she really appreciated. Sounds that we find kind of frightening and annoying, like fingernails on a blackboard, she also found frightening or annoying. When I asked her what her favorite sound was, she said without hesitation, laughter. And then she told me that when she was deaf, before her cochlear implant, she didn't know that when you laughed, you made a noise. Sure, she knew that when people were speaking and she could see their lips moving, that there was some sound associated with those lips moving. But it, she didn't realize that when you laugh, it makes a noise. And she said, before, for her implant, when she saw somebody laughing, she recognized them as laughing and she knew that maybe they were happy, but it didn't necessarily make her happy. Hmm. But when she heard laughter, it was highly infectious and she wanted to laugh too. She said, just hearing, you know, we were one day in my office and there were students outside the office talking. She couldn't understand what they were saying, I could. But she said, just 
hearing their voices and they weren't screaming at each other. They were talking and giggling and having, you know, a good time. She said, just hearing their voices gives her a sense of belonging and it's just very calming and reassuring. She found that sounds had a tremendous amount of emotion, conveyed a tremendous amount of emotion to her. And, um, and for the most part, those were good emotions. It's another one of those things that I think we take for granted. Why does Zora struggle more with understanding speech than sounds? I think because you have to get so much detail out of speech. And um, so for one thing, when I, if I asked you, or if I made a statement, I'm going to the store. And then I turned that into a question and said, I'm going to the store? Um, it's the same four words, right? Or five words, I'm going to the store. Same five words, but the inflection is different. My voice goes up when I say it as a question and doesn't go up when I say it as a statement. And these subtle changes in pitch, the, you know, that my voice going up or down are hard for Zora to pick up because a cochlear implant is not the same as your ears. It doesn't, it, it gives you sound, but the sound isn't quite as rich as it is, you know, with a, a real ear. And so those subtle changes in pitch, I'm going to the store, um, are, are hard for her to pick up. And so um, it is harder for her then to grasp, let's say, the meaning of, of, of a sentence or speech, which somebody is given. So it's a lot like um, trying to read the texts of somebody who doesn't capitalize or use punctuation. Yeah, hmm. yeah. It would be a lot like that. Also, think about if you've learned a foreign language, um, now you could maybe even read a sentence or two in that language, but if somebody speaks it, it seems like they're speaking way too fast and there doesn't seem to be very many breaks between the words. Well, when you read it, it's obvious where the breaks are between the words, right? Mm -hmm. And so the same was true for Zora. She heard people speak. Now, if she were an infant, we would all speak to her much more slowly, right? with great expression. That's what you do with a little child. But she was 12 when she got a cochlear implant. People weren't going to speak to her like that. So the words would just sort of, how do you figure out where the sound of one word ended and the sound of a new word began and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, she had to sort of figure all that out. And one thing that helped was having a sense of the overall context of the conversation. Hmm. The more she, and in fact, this became clear in, um, uh, in the last year during the pandemic, because everyone started to wear masks. And Zora panicked because she uses a combination of hearing and lip reading to understand people. And if they're wearing a mask, there goes the lip reading, right? And she discovered that if she, could relax and had a sense of the context of the conversation that was going on, she could pick up enough through her cochlear implant to follow the conversation. If she had no idea what the people were talking about, she would take out a little notebook and her pen and she'd say, please write down a few key words about this conversation. 
And if somebody did that and she was clued into what the general conversation was about, then she could start understanding a lot more of it. Did the implant affect her speaking ability? Yes. Um, I didn't know Zora before she got her cochlear implant. Her speech is a little unusual. Um, but um, before her implant, uh, she was very, very hard to understand. Only her family and very good friends or very close teachers could really understand her. Once she got her implant, she could hear herself speak. And that feedback allowed her to begin to speak much more clearly. And she became really aware of this one day when she went to a Starbucks and it was a really noisy, you know, coffee shop. And she went to order a latte and she realized she couldn't hear herself Hmm. doing the order. And that made her realize just how much now she was depending on the feedback from her own cochlear implant, telling her what the speech sounded like, you know, to form her words well. Interesting. I can't help but to think of one of the best movies that I've seen in the last year when learning about Zora's story. Have you seen Sound of Metal? I haven't, but somebody else also mentioned it to me. Okay, it is an incredible film, and it's about a heavy metal drummer who suddenly loses his hearing, learns how to live without the ability to hear, and then decides to get the cochlear implant to try and regain his old life. And, gosh, I don't want to spoil this for you, but I I need to for the sake of our question. The seminal moment of the movie, he is watching his ex-girlfriend perform a musical piece. She is singing, her father is playing an instrument, and there is a back-and-forth cutaway of how we're hearing this performance versus how he's hearing it through the cochlear implant. And through the cochlear implant, it is muffled and it's distorted. And afterwards, he still thinks it's this beautiful performance because he cares about this person, but there's a clear difference in the two performances based on what he's hearing versus everybody else. So I guess my question based on that is, is this common with cochlear implants that you hear a much different version of the world around you than everybody else? And secondly, how does Zora enjoy music? So I obviously don't have a cochlear implant, so I can only tell you what I've read or heard from other people. And Zora was profoundly deaf from birth, so she never heard really with her own ears And so for her, um, what she hears is, is, there's no comparison to before. There wasn't really a before where she heard anything well. For people who have had cochlear implants, but at one time heard well, they do talk about how um, music doesn't sound as rich. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Voices are distorted. Initially, the sound sounds very mechanical. But over time, and this is really interesting, it's like as if the brain fills in and the sounds start to sound more and more natural, more and more like what it was like when they had normal hearing Mm. or they might've been some normal hearing, but they had better hearing than before. Um, So for Zora, when I talked to her in 2010 and I asked her about music, she really didn't listen to it at all. Um, or she didn't listen to very much, maybe some religious music, and that was about it. But 
when I saw her in, I think it was 2017, uh, I can remember we got into her car and she told me, look, when we're in the car and I'm driving, I'm not going to talk because I like to look at your face and your lips when you talk. And I can't do that and drive at the same time. So let's listen to some music. And I was really surprised. She likes music now. And later on, when um, I, I um, left her home and her brother drove me to the airport, she was in the car and she asked him, she said, turn on the radio, let's hear some music. Now, what Sora, the music Sora likes tends to have a good sense of rhythm, a good rhythm to it, and not too much accompaniment to it. Hmm. Not a lot of harmonics, not a lot of, you know, the, the, the music should be simpler than with a lot of accompaniment and stuff like that. Um, she's always had a good sense of rhythm. She was an expert jump roper as a child. Um, so um, she is getting uh, a, a, a enjoyment out of music now. And she once went to a Christmas festival and she said it was so much fun to not only see the dancers and everything on stage, but to hear the music as well and to share it with other people. So her, she appreciates music quite a bit even if her, even if, well, if we could hear what she heard, we would feel like it was distorted and muffled and not very good. It's to her still very pleasurable. What does Zora and Liam believe are their greatest continual challenges? I would say uh, with Zora, it is um, continuing to communicate with other people. Um, hearing speech when people uh, have a mask on, being able to overhear people when let's say you're in a, um, in a crowd, it's very hard for her to um, really understand, let's say somebody speaking in a loud, busy restaurant, something like that. Um, so I would say that for her, um, it's, being able to understand speech under all sorts of different conditions in a bathroom with tiled walls where there's a lot of echoes. It's hard for her to understand speech. Um, so being able to understand speech in all the different conditions that most of us are able to understand it in. Uh, for Liam, I think it always is getting that sense of the whole landscape, the, the space all around him looking in the distance and he sees a patch of red, is that, what is that patch of red? Where does that belong? Hmm. Is it part of some larger structure, like a building or a bus? Getting a sense of the whole landscape, I think is a big challenge um, for him. What are Zora and Liam up to these days? So both of them are gainfully employed. Liam lives on his own. And what's really interesting is he has a job in a, in a lab studying the retina. And in particular, his job is to reconstruct individual neurons in the retina. Hmm. And you do this by looking at photographs of cross sections of the retina. So this is highly visual work. And but Liam is good at details. 
He's good at seeing details. He's not so good at seeing the big picture. He's good at seeing details. And he is able to um, reconstruct these neurons quite, quite effectively. And so that's his job, a highly visual job, and he's very good at it. And he's also, he loves sports and he plays on a lot of sports teams, particularly on teams for other people who are visually impaired. He plays beat ball, he plays blind hockey, and a lot of his social life is um, involved with playing sports. Hmm. Zora also has a job um, analyzing uh, various different scientific protocols and trying to, uh, trying to determine whether or not the, a particular experimental design is, let's say, the most effective way to ask a particular clinical question. So they're both working in the science fields. Final question, Sue. Are both Liam and Zora happy with their respective decisions to enhance the sense that was once fleeting? Yes. That's um, for Liam. When I asked him that question, he said, I can't imagine the last few years any other way. Wow. For his mom, Cindy, who has been there coaching him and supporting him and guiding him all these years, there were times when she saw him struggle so with trying to understand what he was seeing that she wondered if they should have undergone the operations at all. Um, uh, she, she does believe that, yes, the operations were a good thing, but there were moments when this struggling was so difficult that, you know, she did question it. Zora too um, is uh, very, very grateful for her cochlear implant and uh, would not want to be in life without it. Susan R. Berry is Professor Emeritus of Biology and Neuroscience at Mount Holyoke College, where she researched stereo vision, neuroplasticity, and hand-eye coordination. She's also the author of Fixing My Gaze, A Scientist's Journey into Seeing in Three Dimensions, and her newest book titled Coming to Our Senses, A Boy Who Learned to See, A Girl Who Learned to Hear, and How We All Discover the World. Sue, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Join me next time when I speak with experimental social psychologist John Petrocelli about the life-changing science of detecting bullshit. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.